You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, 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 everybody. Hopefully you're doing okay. I've been reflecting a lot on the present because realistically, that's like that's all that we're in it right now. Like right now, this moment that we're experiencing is the most important thing that you will experience because that's what's happening right now. You've got no control over what's happening 10 minutes from now or what happened in the past. Just focus on this moment, talking about independent music, why it matters so much to us. I, I, I promise that that is something that your life will benefit from. I know mine has recently. I've always tried to keep that in mind, but sometimes like when you are, you know, literally doing something awesome at the moment, you're thinking about something in the future and you got to shut your brain off for that. But anyways, I have a rad guest on today. He is a Orange County hardcore and punk lifer. This is a guy who I've traveled around but had never met before, which uh, felt weird. We actually addressed that at, uh, I don't know if we actually recorded that, but at the uh, the beginning of the interview or prior to me taping it, uh, I was just like, dude, it's weird we've never met. And he's like, I know, right? It's weird. I've known of your name for quite some time. But Joe Nelson, he is the original vocalist uh, of Ignite, which he finds it funny that people still refer to him as such. So of course I was going to refer to him as that. Um, but uh, he also did merch for a ton of bands and you know has just lived the hardcore, you know, music industry lifestyle for quite some time. He uh, ran a merch company for a long time, and uh, he now is doing a really, really awesome record label called Trust Records that focuses on, you know, really important records that, for one reason or another, uh, you know, may not have got their proper documentation in regards to vinyl releases or, you know, being up on all of the streaming providers and all that sort of stuff. Their first release is the seminal release from Circle Jerks called Group Sex, and they did an amazing, amazing booklet, really cool colored vinyl, and I, I just love it when people put such put so much attention into detail and making sure that like, hey, when you buy this record, when you buy this piece of vinyl, you're not only getting an incredible record, but you're getting a synopsis of why this record is important and all this other stuff. So anyways, I had to have Joe on and we talk all about that. We talk about his uh, life touring and so much fun stuff, but you can support the show by doing a few different things. First of all, you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I've been getting a lot of feedback recently from people being like, hey, you should think about this person as a guest. And my favorite thing is when a person is like, hey, have you had this person on? And then I'm like, yeah, episode 134. Not like I have them memorized because I don't. Um, my brain doesn't work completely that way, even though I can tell you the uh, you know colored vinyl of a Chain of Strength record that I got you know some 10 years ago. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there, but email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. You can also please be so kind as to leave a review on Apple Podcasts in particular. It helps the show out. I know you hear this from like literally every podcast you listen to, but it does make a difference. And plus, I like to see that sort of, uh, you know, feedback. Uh, people, you know, maybe haven't said nice things on there. And, you know, that's okay. If, the, if that is your opinion and you want to tell me that I can't ask direct questions, whatever totally fine. I get it. Um, I would never do that personally, but you know, that's, that's, that's up to you. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that those, are the, those are the ways that you can support the show and also support the advertisers in the show. Um, these are, as long as it's read by me, these are all things that are approved <laughs> by me and that I feel really passionate about. And then when you support these advertisers in the show, you support this show and it's just, it's a, it's a nice circular effect here. You get something cool in return. 
I get to, you know, to make sure that I'm making a little money off this thing. So, you know, my wife and kid don't uh, kick me out of the house and, you know, all that fun stuff. But anyways, so let's talk to Joe. Like I said, Trust Records, a really, really cool thing that he has launched. And he's going to be doing a lot of amazing records in the future. He's teased a few out to me, not, not formally announced yet, but really cool stuff in the pipeline. But most Notably, right now, the Circle Jerks record, Group Sex. Go check it out. You can follow him on Instagram and all the other portals that you would imagine. So you can find it on the internet. So here we go. Here's Joe. My my first personal experience was... um, you know, I mean, Ignite loomed large and still looms large in my life. And that was kind of one of the first, for lack of a better term, like local band touch points that I had. Because, you know, you get into your whatever strifes and earth crises in the mid 90s. But then Ignite was in my backyard. So I was like, oh, this is great. Oh, and funny. right. And then, uh, you know, once I found them, I basically devoured all their material. And then included with that was obviously the Scarred for Life CD that came out on, on uh, Lost and Found. And yeah. I, I was, you know, as a whatever 14 15 year old kid i was kind of confused i was like wait at one point ignite had i'm like this is interesting i'm like <laughs> I, I, yeah. I didn't and so because you know as a kid like you don't really track that so um I, i'm gonna guess it's probably really funny for you that you know you obviously get so closely tied into ignite even though you're like dude i haven't played in that band for like 20 years you know like this isn't uh you know this doesn't it, it's an important part of my history but it's not my you know not like people are summarizing you as joe nelson from ignite but I, I just find it interesting yeah no i mean it's an interesting thing because it's definitely i've been in bands and that's the most recognizable band i've been in ignite and and when that band came about i looked at it like a project i was going to college uh, I was doing a band called Trigger Man, and that was kind of my band that I did. And then I was friends with Joe Foster. He really wanted to start a band, like a hardcore band, what like Ignite is. And I was like, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do like a seven inch, <laughs> you know, like. And we did that band. And I just, and all, at the same time, I was going to college, I was touring. So I was a roadie for Quicksand. And I think that made it frustrating for him. So like at one point the way I worked at Ignite, like I never took it that seriously. Like we just kind of, was, you know, a fun thing I was doing and he really wanted Joe Foster has really wanted to do it like a full-time job. Like I want to be in a band. And I was like, well, I'm not the guy for you, but my friend, Randy Johnson is a rad singer. He'd probably be good. And I went and recruited Randy and he became the singer for the next six months. And then they got Zoli. <laughs> Right. So it's, so it's funny to me because like, like at the time I didn't care. And then as you guys got older, I learned to appreciate it more. Right. Cause it's just like, yeah, that's cool, man. And, and, and when our friend John Bunch died, God, it's been about four years now. We put on that benefit form and we got the original Ignite lineup back together uh, and did like five songs for that benefit. And that was just a blast. So I really have a lot of fond memories from Ignite, and, and I'm, it's been fun. Brett Rasmussen, the bass player, is still like one of my great friends. But that's funny that that's like a band that would be weird to go back because like even that Lost and Found CD, I got recruited back to record those songs because Zoli didn't want to record them, and they're just such a weird. If you know anything about any of those guys, they're such a weird 
dramatic history with guys quitting and fighting and they were like we need to go to europe and we need to finish the cd where you do your three songs that are on the cd and randy's gonna do his five and i'm just yeah you know like sure dude <laughs> like whatever you know as long as i don't have to pay for it right well and especially too i mean you know, clearly the history on Lost and Found has been written at this point where, you know, it's yeah. not like they were on the up and up label. So it's just funny that you was like, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's you had to like, be ripped a, back in. It's just, yeah, it's such a weird thing because like, I'm not kidding. I think I'm pretty sure Zoli was the singer, but he didn't want to do those songs, but they were going to go tour. And I just, it's one of those things where like, I remember the, the store when Joe Foster called me to come back and sing the, on that CD, like, the story was so long that I just kind of tuned out at one point, which is like, you know, like, what do you need, dude? Like, like you're taking like half hour to explain to me why I need to be on the CD. I don't, why just do it? Like, it's not like, yeah, it's funny, but it's funny. It's, funny, it's you know, we did do this demo, which we recorded on a four track. Uh, that's like a six song demo, I think, or eight songs, six songs. And, and that was really funny because it was such a poorly recorded demo that we did on like a four track. And that sold out of Vinyl Solution. I think we sold like 500 copies. And that's one of those things where like selling 500 copies of a demo, I was like, holy shit, man. People are like buying that thing. And, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. moving a lot of units. <laughs> moving a lot of units. And what's funny about that demo is it'll drive me crazy the rest of my life is when Joe Foster laid it out, he put like the numbers for like number one, like the little number sign, the pound sign, he had it reversed. So it was like one and then the number and not number one. And it just like, it was like dyslexic looking. It just was, it drives me crazy. Whenever I see that demo, I'm like, I can't look at it. It's just aesthetically wrong. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) No, I totally, I I totally get that. I mean, and it it is interesting too, because I I think that, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, the history of a band, like, I mean, any hardcore band that exists longer than, you know, 15 years, um, you know, obviously there's going to be a a revolving door of members coming and going, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's interesting to see a band like that be able to go through all the evolution they did at the beginning. And then, you know, theoretically sound like the same band from call my brothers to, you know, our darkest days and obviously everything that they're, you know, maybe planning on doing in the future. Like that's a weird thing to do. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and then I think, but I think it's one of those things too, where it's like the, the evolution of that band, like once they had Zoli as the singer that cemented their sound because Zoli had that, you know, he has like a five octave range, he's a real singer doing hardcore. So then Ignite Ignite became this band that was known for having a real singer sing hardcore songs, which has always been an interesting kind of thing for me listening to it because it's like I got into hardcore. Singers aren't perfect. Like I can't, I'm not a great singer. So like you do different things to kind of make a presence. So it's always been a weird dynamic for me listening to that Ignite, especially like I love calling my brothers. I think it's great but like as it progressed it always seemed like to me that they were kind of caught in between wanting to be like a rock band and a hardcore band and it's it's interesting it's it's been it's, been, it's an interesting band man like and now Zoli's not in it anymore so we'll see what happens so move yeah. on to they'll move on to a, their fourth singer Right, right. No, it, it is interesting. And I'll I'll pick out a thread that you kind of hit on a little bit later, because I'm sure, sure it was interesting to, uh, you know, uh, a vibe on the, you know, <laughs> r- hardcore bands turning into rock bands, but I'll get there in a minute. But um, okay. 
putting on you as a focus, I mean, I, I'm going to presume uh, you were born and raised in Orange County. Uh, I was born in Huntington yeah, born and raised in Huntington Beach in Fountain Valley, which is, as you know, is the next city over. So yeah, I, I my birth certificate says Huntington Beach. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what was your uh, family structure like growing up? Like mom and dad in the house, brothers and sisters? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I have a sister who's seven years younger. Um, it was, I mean, growing up in Orange County, I grew up, so I'm 50. So I, you know, seventies and eighties were my years of growing up, which you couldn't grow up in a better place. I mean, as like a, you know, white dude, like living in Orange County, like you just, I had the, a great childhood and stuff. Uh, I, my family dynamic was weird because I come from an alcoholic. My, my father was a, an alcoholic and uh, it was a weird dynamic, but with anyone will tell you, like, you don't, you know, that's your, you don't know anybody. You have one frame of reference, which is that. So for me, it was normal, <laughs> you know what I mean? But that. Sure really led me into music um because what happened in my dynamic and i'm sure it's definitely not unique to people who got into punk rock or hardcore really any form of music is i found a lot of time hiding out in my room trying to avoid whatever the unpredictable part is in the front of the house and once i kind of discovered records then you know that's what i did like i'd be like all right well i'm gonna be in my room all night listen to minor threat seven inches or whatever, you know, like, so it's like, uh, it, it's a weird thing. I always say that, you know, music saved my life. Um, and it did cause that punk rock, you know, I grew up, so I grew up in a scene that was a punk rock is very accessible. Um, I remember, and if I, I rambled, these would cut me off if I start rambling, but I, okay. I remember, I remember as a kid, like, you know, like in the late seventies, someone had spray painted sex pistols, number one on the portable in our elementary school. And it was up there for like the, I felt like the whole year and no one knew what that was. No, I mean, like, you know, you're an eight year old kid. Like I was like, you know, like we just, I didn't even know what seven, you know, I'm just, okay. <laughs> like, and I remember being in a record store called Music Box, which was in Fountain Valley and seeing the Sex Pistols, never mind the Bullets record on the wall as like a kid. Like I went to the movies with my mom or something and I walked around this record store. She let me look at records and I was like, whoa. And I didn't buy that record, but when that clicked, that that was a band, um, I was fascinated. And, and, and like the first, there was a band called Shattered Faith, which is an early punk band. They grew up in my neighborhood. So there was kids with mohawks kind of going around. So like when punk was bubbling at the very beginning, I was too young to be involved in it, but it was there and it was very present. And, you know, I remember like hearing about Black Flag at like early on at like 10 or 11, like, people all black flags the band people talking about black flag and spam black flag and it was very like notorious and there's all kinds of crazy rumors about them and that's just being fascinating before you could even hear the music right just going like whoa what is that so i i went to punk pretty quick like there's not a progression of like i listened to led zeppelin and and like i the first punk tapes i bought with my own money was the clash tape the first clash record and the english beat tape like special beat service like so those are my first records i purchased my own money and then I, and then yeah. Yeah, no, that's that. I appreciate you painting that picture because I do think it is interesting when, um, you know, to, to your point of kind of the uh, accessibility of a subculture that gets kind of plastered around, you know, the suburbs, which obviously all of Orange County is, because, you know, most people kind of expect that in large cities, but not necessarily the suburbs. Like, obviously, that's kind of like your second line of defense, as it were. So it's yeah. interesting that you saw that and you were just like, 
I got to know about that, whatever that may mean, but I got to know about it. Yeah, it was, that was the mystery of it. It's just kind of, you would just, you hear about these bands, you heard about punk, you heard about punk rock, and then like it became kind of a thing on the news, right? And there was like the chips, there's a chips episode where the chips, you know, they're the punk rockers from chips. And I remember as a kid that we, when that episode was on, we were like, do the punk rock episode. It was in TV guys. Like, oh, oh my God, there's a punk rock episode on chips. Like we were like 11, you know, that was exciting. So it, it, you, we found about it in weird kind of ways. But as I mentioned, you know, coming from this like kind of alcoholic family, which is, you know, I don't want to like, my dad's been gone for years. So it's not like I want to paint a bad picture of him, but it is the environment I grew up in. It wasn't a, healthy environment in a lot of ways so i the straight edge thing then spoke to me quickly because once i found punk rock and then i found out about minor threat even though i didn't see him but i did know about him and and, and and it just was that that whole message clicked so once i got into high school and the straight edge thing was coming up in orange county like i was in man like i was one probably the first 20 kids in orange county who was xing up and like this is for me straight in <laughs> right right and it is interesting in regards to you know the uh straight edge scene that started to develop in you know the early to mid 80s uh you know in particularly like the orange or actually maybe sorry mid 80s to late 80s the the scene that started to kind of populate like it seems i mean from a person who you know came up more in the mid 90s going to shows it seemed very very incestuous not like it wasn't incestuous in the late 90s yeah. and early 2000s because it clearly was but like it seemed like the, the pocket of people that were creating music and creating art <clears throat> at that particular time were bouncing around to everybody's band. Yeah. It will. And that's kind of how it works, right. In anything. So you would have, you have, as you have a handful of musicians. So as kids, like we're kids, uh, there's only a handful of guys who can play guitar, or a handful of guys who more importantly can play drums, right. That's the hardest instrument to find when you're a kid is a guy who can play the drums. Yeah. And, and anyone can sing and, and then bass, you know, nothing against a bass player, but you can figure that out, especially in hardcore pretty quick, easily. So that's what happens is like, and, and I think the exciting thing about coming up in the music scene as a kid or, and seeing it kind of through fruition. So like, right, you're, you know, you're talking about the nineties, what time we got to the nineties, like I was on the tail end of, you know, my kind of like love affair was say like straight edge and hardcore and punk rock in general, like not that I don't love, but, but I was not straight edge anymore for sure. And I just was kind of like, well, you know, like this music's getting kind of stale and I'm kind of over it, but then that's what happens. There's a whole generation of kids behind you who are like discovering strife or throw down or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, and that's cool. That's what's kind of rad about scenes is that I always love the lineage of like the history of the scene. Like, uh, we can tr you can trace it. You can trace like you know the, the lineage from, especially for straight edge. You can go back and go, okay, Ian Mackay, you know, and his group of friends in yeah. Washington D.C. started straight edge, and from Ian, it's come all the way to wherever you want to take it. But that's always been like a really a, a part of the, a part of that that scene that I really love the music, the hardcore scene is like it's small, and you can touch it. You know what I mean? Like, like you can touch the players and you know who the people you feel like you're like in a, tr you, you know, or you always felt like you're in a tribe, like an exclusive club. Even if you're, even if you're generationally moved from people, like we're 10, we have a 10 year age difference. All right. We come from hardcore scene. We immediately speak a language, right? Mm -hmm. that, that a lot of people 
can't speak. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, it's a it, it's a shorthand that you're immediately yeah. able to dive into and mention stupid bands that you're like, oh yeah, of course I know what you're talking about, or like, oh yeah, what are you talking about the Ice House and Fullerton? Sure, of course, like of course, you just. Yeah. Yeah, you just know you just know these things. So no, I totally agree. Well, it, 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 sorry, I'm going to and expands on your point. So I've been in the music business, and, and I'm sure we'll touch on that. I imagine, but, but like, it served me well in the music business in such an interest. You know, I, I mer, music merchandising was what I did for 20 years, and one of the bands I signed was Run the Jewels, which was one of the bands I was most proud to sign. And I was a band I was chasing, and like every merchandise company was chasing them. And the reason I got them, I know is the manager of LP, Amici, and I, when we met, we started talking about, he was from DC, and we started talking about, I started to do my pitch, and I mentioned Discord, and he mentioned Negative Approach, because he's from Washington, I'm like, how, you know, how do you know Negative Approach? And then we went down a rabbit hole together, talking about hardcore, and Discord, and ethics of what I'm trying to do in merchandising, and Discord, and dude, that was, it was done. Like, because we were just like, everyone else in the meeting, because I'd always feel from my company afterwards, they're like, oh, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but it feels like we got the account. I'm like, oh, we got the account. Because he, me and him immediately vibed, and we're like, oh, we, we're, we're cool. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you, you get what, we're talking about negative approach? <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Oh, dude, you, yeah, you get it. Right. <laughs> like, we have to be in business together. Right. Yeah. And now we're, yeah. And we're, and we're friends ever since, because that's what happens with those kind of relationships, is you're like, because you're, you're from that same, foundation you you you're, there's something about your dna where you kind of connect automatically and yeah there's a level yeah. right yeah. Uh, totally there's a level of trust that exists yeah. because you're like oh i know that you're not out to like you know stab me in the back well sorry that's like a total <laughs> cliche <theory. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. you're not you're not out to, to to trounce on me but yeah no i totally understand what you're talking about so you know, w walk me through like as you were going through, uh, you know, high school and like you said, completely immersing yourself within, um, you know, trying to play in bands and obviously putting bands together and kind of that uh, that immersion juxtaposed, uh, you know, against the whole, uh, you know, surf subculture. Because like, you know, you could not separate the two, especially when you're talking about like the hardcore scene at the time. It was like, oh, you're into hardcore and you probably surf. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, so yeah, well, what happened with me is, I was a troubled kid. Uh, I got kicked out of school. So when I got kicked out of my junior high, I went to a school called DeWire, which is in downtown Huntington Beach. And that accelerated my punk rock surf skate work because there was, I went from a school that had like two or three kids who were in punk rock to a school that had 50, right? Like they're all mm -hmm. the kids because they're going to surf school. And like the thing, the cool thing to do is surf and skate. And like all my lifelong friends I met the hardcore we all met in Dwyer just junior high and that's and that that really yeah sk skating surfing and listening to punk rock and listening to punk rock on a wide scale so you're not like it, you know I obviously I talk about straight edge and that gets pretty niche but like the bands that I loved at the time were like Bad Brains, PSOL, DI like it wasn't just like you know the hardcore thing was so small at the time there was only really minor threat I didn't really know the Boston band yet um so I just knew Minor Threat as a straight edge band, which I loved. And then as I got kicked out of that high school, I went to Huntington Beach High School and kicked out. I had to go back to Fountain Valley. But the band Uniform Choice is from Fountain Valley. And those, the, the Dubars, the singer Pat Dubar, he lived a block away from me. Um, and when I found out about Uniform Choice, I was about 14. And that's when I re it really accelerated. I, I just started going to shows then, right? So I started going to shows about 13, 14 when I was able to. And 
once you get into high school and stuff, that was it. Like, so you, uniform choice was our band. That was our, you know, that oh, uniform choice is playing. That's our straight edge band. Like we went, didn't miss a show. And that, uh, and it's a weird parallel um, in high school because I had a great high school uh, experience, but it had nothing to do with high school. It had to do with going to shows. Like I didn't care about high school. <laughs> like I didn't go to. I mean, I went to football games, but I never went to like not to do anything but to mess around. Like you know, I didn't. I didn't participate in high school. I participated in this subculture outside of high school with other kids from different high schools. You know, so like our crew of high school. You know, I went to a school called Los Amigos in the end. I'm, so there's a couple guys there, and then there's guys at Huntington Beach, and then all those guys from Irvine. Uh, we met them through shows and that was, you know, the Hayworth brothers, Mark and Rob, and then Zach De La Roca. Um, they were all in the hardcore and skating and surfing. Right. So then we were all, mm-hmm. so, so that's what happens is you get your crew of friends in high school. It's really about, you know, it's, it's 20 guys from 10 different high schools around Orange County. And that's, what's so unique about, and I'm thankful for, but that, that experience in music is that, like, I have, I, I, I felt like my high school experience was so broad and so enriched, but it was like nothing to do with high school parties. I didn't, you know, if we went to high school parties, it wasn't to like drink or real strategy. It was to like goof around, you know, we were going to shows like, you know, between a choice between a high school party and a show, we were all going to shows. Like that was way more fun than high school party. And, (laughs) and and then then, like always wanting to be in a band, you know what I mean? But that's, it's hard in high school. Like I, I was in a ton of bands with dudes that just never panned out. And then, um, we were really good friends. There's the guys in instead, which is that you know band from Anaheim. They were, we loved that band came a little bit after your from choice. And then they became a, a band that we were friends with that we saw. And, and eventually, you know, the goal is to get in your own band. And at some point I was about 18 or 19. I was able to do start this band trigger. Well, I didn't start it, but trigger man was a band that Gavin from no for an answer had started that wanted to be a little bit more post-punk. Um, and I joined that and then the, but it was, you know, which is funny because you join, you're like, okay, it's my turn. I'm ready. But you realize you don't have the experience to really do good at like, do well, when you look back, I'm sure everyone does. You're like, man, if I go back and be in that band again with what I know now, like you would handle it completely different because you don't realize you can't just practice once a week and be good. Right. right? Like you just feel like, Hey, I'm doing my going to college. I got my band. I practice at nights. We're playing the ice house next week. So we got to practice once on Saturday. You know, it's like you, you realize that when you get older, like, Oh, the bands that made it like, like, Oh, Fugazi. Oh, Fugazi practiced eight to nine hours a day, five days a week. <laughs> oh, right. oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, that's how it works. You practice your craft. If you want to be the band, you can't do like a ton of different shit. Um, and that's the thing too. I think I think of being in a hardcore band, like I think a lot of guys, I did. And I, I think no one ever looked at it as like, hey man, I'm doing this for a living. You're just doing it because like, man, it wouldn't be fun to play some shows and go on tour and you know put out records. And that's what you do. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, and uh, you know, kind of your, I guess, life path, as it were, like as you started to you know look after high school and you know, like you said, you always really just were focused on music. Was there any other notion, um, you know, of you doing something, uh, you know, else besides trying to figure oh. out something with the oh, context yeah. of music? Sure. Okay. Like I went to college to be a history teacher and coach high school basketball. That was oh, my, okay. That was my dream. And I, I played a lot of basketball. So I was, that was my sport. And 
I just at some point, and I and it was it's weird, dude, because like I said, I didn't have a good family structure, so I didn't really have parents talent. Like there was no guidance that way, so it was kind of grab assing it and figure out yourself. So college, which should take kids four or five years, took me like eight years because I was like, well, I'm going to go on tour this this fall. I'm not going to go to college or like, you know, I was working at nightclubs at the time. And I'm like, yeah, this, working nightclubs is fun. Maybe I'll do that. And like, you know, so like there was like I was always. But I, you know, and, and when you're doing music, I remember the one, you know, it just never felt like a career you could do, right? Because you're like, you know, I was on the road a lot. So I was, so my, you know, once I start tour managing, I'm like, I still, you know, I had that fear. Like, well, I can't be a tour manager because I don't want to end up like 40 with like a, you know, a mag light around my belt until right. you end up at 40. You're going, and, and your friends who are tour managers are crushing it. And it's a fucking great life and they love it. And you're like, and you miss, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just a weird it's just a weird thing because you just never, and I'm sure it's like with punk rock, like because people didn't take seriously and parents don't take that stuff, there doesn't seem like any real end game to it. No one's encouraging you to pursue that at the time. And so you're in the back of your mind. That's why I want to be a high school history teacher and coach basketball because that's a proper job and that's what you do. And it's practical. Yeah, it's yeah. practical. It's a good point. And so, and then, and then somewhere in there, like once I was out of college and stuff and I was in my mid to late 20s. I was like, no, man, like I'm going to, I'm into music, you know, like I, that's what I love. I'm going to do that. Like I'll figure, I'll figure it out. And it took, it took a while, but, but eventually I kind of, like I said, I got this merch path that I was on for 20 years and that was, that was my career. And it was all, and it's all thanks to like punk rock really, you know? Yo, the world is looking a little bit more normal now. Let me be abundantly clear, though. We're still obviously all being safe and secure, all that sort of stuff. And the best way that you can support artists, because there are no shows, and there are no shows in the foreseeable future, is buying merch. It's incredibly important. And rockabilia.com is the place that you can do that. So use this code 100, that's the number 100 words, that gets you 10% off your order. Do that right now. Go to the website, check it out, find all of the awesome stuff from all of your favorite bands. And the most important part, not only is the merch really good, but it's all officially licensed. No bad bootleg stuff. No horrible ripoffs that you're buying on Amazon or some you know, kid that's pulling off a horrible pixelated image off of Google search, image search. None of that. Rockabilia works with the bands, the managers, everybody is in the loop and it's just it's a beautiful process i love it so again go to rockabilia.com and use the code 100 words it gets you 10 percent off your order you are supporting this show when you're doing that you're supporting the artists when you're doing that and you're also getting rad band merch to boot so it's like it's a win 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 scenario all the way across the board so go to rockabilia.com have fun the you know so as you started to like kind of develop your friend group and, you know, really get immersed in the scene and start to, you know, bring this home where I'm sure your parents, like, like you said, they were permissive to the point where you could go to shows and you could, you know, do these things. But like, how are they reacting to this? Like, you know, very unconventional lifestyle through their eyes. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Oh, those, well, uh, you know, well, how's he, how's he doing this? What, what's, what's the deal? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, so my sister's seven years younger than me. So at some point when I was 13 or 14, my parents did split up finally. And that changed the dynamics of how I was able to live because my mom, bless her heart, was put, trying to keep a family together, working two jobs. She's a teacher. So she was working day job as a teacher and then teaching ESL at night and keeping that away from 
me or my sister, that, that was a struggle. My dad was doing whatever he was doing. So he wasn't really part of the program anymore. And my sister was seven. So when I was like, let's see, when I'm 13, 14, my sister's, yeah, she's like seven. So my mom's doing a little kid. I was left on my own. So it was really great for me, probably not the best way to raise a kid <laughs> at that age, but like sure. my mom didn't even know I was, I was gone for a week sometimes. And my mom, I would just phone in from and be like, Hey, I'm at my friend Bob's house. And you know what I mean? And we would like, do we want, I went to sh- a show in San Francisco at like 15, like for over a week. Like me and my buddies, like one guy was 16 at a car, like let's go to Frisco. And we just said they were spending the night at people's houses. And like I was up in Frisco for four days, I slept in Golden Gate Park in a dry fountain. That's what we did, and went sure. to Gil- Gilman Show and like and thought nothing of it. Like just thought like, cool man, you know, like seven seconds. I think that's the first time youth of today had come through. We wanted to go see them, and they were starting in Frisco. You know, so it just was like an adventure of like epic proportions, but not. I'm not a parent, but if I was, there's no way in hell my kid would be able to do that <laughs> like, and i would be right. a little bit more like hey music's great but like what's your game plan you know like what we, you know no one ever had those conversations with me they just like assumed i'd figure it out and i think at one point the only time i really got would talk would talk to you by my dad about it was i had an uncle who thought i was gay and so he told my dad that I, he thought i was gay and my dad came over and talking about these clubs i was going to and what i was doing and i was just like you know, I was, I think, 16th time. I just, I just remember him in my, just in my head, just being like, I really fucking hate my family. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? But like, that was the concern. Nothing else. Like, yeah. Are, are you gay? <laughs> like, like, I don't know. What, I wonder what happened if I, had, if I was. It would, it was an interesting way. I just, you know. Yeah, that's so, it's just so funny that, I mean, I, you know, I've heard a lot of people's different stories with their, um, you know, uh, inner turmoil and strife within their parents and, you know, just trying to break stuff to them like, oh, this is what straight edge is and me going to shows. But like, I've definitely never heard where it's like, oh, you're going to these weird clubs. Like you must be a homosexual. Like that's so, it's just so funny that they would draw that conclusion. Yeah. Because the club senders, which was the club I went to the most, that was the club that was in Long Beach and all people knew about Long Beach was it was a seedy town and it had a big gay population. So if you're a 16 year old kid with bleach blonde hair going to long beach to my dad and my uncles who are all like military dudes, right? That's, that's kind of, they all were in the military. Like they're just to them. That's the only reason you would ever go to long beach. And then that's the only, like, that's when you pay attention to your kid after like all these years of neglect. It's just also like, Oh, Oh, well, and that's only, and, and if you look at it, Right. It's, it's basically that's that's someone paying attention to their kid because I'm sure my dad's mind, if I had been gay, that would have been a failure on his part. Right. So it's like, uh, right. it's just like such a weird effed up dynamic, but whatever. I like, I can't, re- I don't regret any of it. Like the, the, the punk, like I said, like the, that music saved my life. Those bands, Pat Dubois, the thing of uniform choice was like, you couldn't have a better big brother mentor type figure. Cause Pat's about three or four years older than me. And he was like the king of the club man I mean, he was the guy right so like yep. so having that and you know as you're an insecure kid and stuff you're going to these shows like that gives you you know an identity gives you some power like the straightest thing like for better for worse gave me a identity and gave me a belonging and gave me like uh self-esteem because i was mm-hmm. like you know like i'm like no matter what's happening i got this scene with these kids and it's to me it's you know way cooler than 
anything else. Like, he's fucking seen, like, the Bad Brains play. Like, are you kidding? Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. right? This is incredible. Like, yeah, you're going yeah. to see the Dead Kings for the first time. Like, that's a, that's, I'll take that experience over freaking anything, you know? Sure. Totally, totally. Uh, and kind of hitting on that uh, idea of what we were talking about at the beginning, like when, you know, because there was that very interesting era where, you know, so many hardcore bands achieved levels of success that nobody could have ever anticipated, you know, playing in front of 500 people is just like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, you know, yeah. and then the, you know, the, the business of music obviously started to creep in where, you know, there were notions of like, how can we do this band on a more serious level? Like we can't just be this, you know, tiny, small, straight edge, hardcore band in the context of the big music pond or whatever. So many of them obviously went the rock route. So was it, you know, was it, I, I guess, weird at the time as you were observing these bands? I mean, you know, I distinctly remember buying uniform choices, staring in the sun and being like, how come this doesn't sound like screaming for a change? Right. <laughs> Yeah. So like, how, how did, you know, as a, a person who like lived through that, was it weird to watch all those bands kind of, you know, uh, yeah. I guess make that shift? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and okay. it's a weird thing too, because with hardcore, especially that scene, so what, you know, for the, for better, for worse, but maybe for worse, like as straight edge kind of became a bigger scene within that punk rock hardcore scene, it became, those shows became, you, you only started going to straight edge shows, right? And that, like, it used to be like a uniform choice, the only straight edge band in town. So they played with punk rock bands. So you have these diverse shows of like exploited, aggression, you know, seven seconds, which is kind of strange, and then uniform choice and stuff. And then those bands, they became all straight edge. And then that became kind of diluted. And then there's a very big competition, especially when you're young. So, like, we're from Orange County, California, right? So, like, that's the scene. Uniform choice is the best band instead. And the New York guys are our great friends, but like there's a real rivalry at the time between Uniform Choice and Youth of the Day. So the hardest thing about Uniform Choice was those are my brothers. So I, I, I'm with them to the end, but you're like with them going like, man, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is sure. tough because it's like you love those guys and, and at the time you don't have any perspective so you don't see it the way they see it. You know, you don't realize like, at the time that like, Hey man, this hardcore, you get bent. You want to do something else. Like all these, these bands that changed, like at the time, the late eighties and the, the scene you're talking about, either guys became metal bands or they became kind of U2-ish or REM. So seven seconds and those bands got very mellow and became like U2. That was their influence. And that didn't jive with the kids. Right. And, and, yep. and, and the rock thing didn't jive. It was just a big mess. It was a big, it's a big confused mess, but you just don't realize that everyone's just a bunch of kids trying to figure it out. Like now talking, you talk about Doob or Pat Longer from your choice. I mean, just it's hysterical laughing about like that mentality of like, let's like, we're going to be, you know, cause we're, we're drawing, you know, uniform choices. People's drawing a couple thousand people in Orange County or in, in LA, Southern California. So like, that's a huge band, huge drawing 2,000 people to a show. So then their mind is like, how do we make this bigger and better? They, they went on tour and they came home with like, I think like a $40,000 profit, which is unheard of for a hardcore strange band at the time, right? And so they're looking at like, hey, let's, like, I want to do this professionally. I want to do this. Like, this is more fun than... So I get you get the mentality, but it takes years to get that perspective to look back at it fondly. At the time, at the time you're just like delusioned. <laughs> as, a young, as a young hardcore guy, like watching like, man you know and and, and then when you, when you get older you look back and go like yeah it all makes sense like you just can't play that same 
music. And it's funny, man. I just, you'll get this because you're from the scene. Like, I went down the rabbit hole and investigated that Warzone, self-titled Warzone record that's been kind of, oh, it's been, yeah. Stalin, been Stalinized from their discography because I was just like, yep. oh yeah. I, and I was listening today before you before we talked. I was like, I never checked out that. Whoa. Like, talk about like, those are bands that are just like, I don't know what they're doing. Like, you know, like, but I kind of, totally. I appreciate it. Like, they're just trying something. They don't know. There's kids. Like, trying to keep music. Yeah. Well, and and especially too, because that was such a weird era where it's like, I mean, clearly the music industry didn't know anything about where trends were heading. And so they were trying to like square peg round hole. It was so many of yeah. these bands from DYS and Warzone, everything, you, you know, you could name 10 bands and it was all like under the guise of, okay, maybe we can turn these bands into this not screaming stupid hardcore stuff to like something more polished. And it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, you just know you're right. Well, it was well, the, their children. Well, I think what happened. Well, I think also what happened. This is what always happens in music. But from the beginning, from the blues guys getting taken advantage of the folk guys, is all these independent labels like the Dubars had Wishing Well Records, which became you know all they're all distributed through other companies like Dutch East India was a big distributor, and those are run by like adult forty year old music men who are just who look at music like you would look at selling pencils, right? So they're like, so what they're seeing on their distro book is, oh, this band Uniform Choice is selling 40,000 records. Whoa, let's put some, let's, you know, let's get behind this. So they kind of get in these dudes' ears too, and they start, you know, the, it gets out of control. The scene gets out of the hands of the kids. And, it gets, and the distributors, which are really like major labels in a sense, they kind of railroad this whole stuff. So these labels started up like Giant, right? And if you look at the stuff that was on Giant, it's Uniform Choice, Staring the Sun, Field Day, the, the, the Dagnasty Field Day record. Some of the government, I mean, I love government issues. It's one of my favorite bands, but that later day government issue stuff, which is kind of pop. The, I think a lot of that stuff got molded by these music types that were yeah. in, more of these guys. You're like, hey, make something more commercial. Like you guys are already selling 40,000 records with garbage <laughs> right like, right, like right. write some songs and i and that's that's a mistake that's a huge mistake and it's also like you know like uh i've been talking with sean stern a lot and kevin seconds for this endeavor that me and matt pinkers are doing which i know i'm sure we'll talk about but like their mentality too like these guys are like in their 20s like they're professional musicians in their 20s and they don't even realize they're professional musicians right so they're they do the same thing too trying to like expand their craft trying to trying to be a little bit more commercial viable um so it's kind of a mismatch it's just kind of a, a perfect storm of that it gets kind of like the, the purity of the youth culture gets corrupted no matter what and there's only ian mckay who can rise above it because he stays true from the beginning with his label and, and doesn't cave to like the demands of the business right there's a yeah you can all <laughs> there's only few people that can thread that needle and, you know, be able to be successful. Cause yeah, not, I mean, everybody is going to look at the model of Fugazi and be like, Oh, I want that. And it's like, well, how much do you really want that? Like you probably can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, and, 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 and I feel like Ian and I have become pretty good friends over the years. And like, I said to him the other day, like we, this is a, I'm just going to tell you a, a great story. Cause it's so interesting. Um, we started talking uh, quite a bit recently. And when I was a kid, I'd send him postcards. Or I sent him, I sent him like a letter, like a fan letter, right? And some lyrics. And he's such a 
archivist and historian, he had kept my original letters. So he scanned them and sent them back to me so I could read them. And it was a wild snapshot into like, just kind of like we backing up like this troubled kid, like broken up, you know, whatever my trip I'm going through. And I just reached out to him. And I was like, you know, man, like, this is a lot of weight to put on a young guy, meaning me putting on Ian, because I'm not, I'm just one of thousands and thousands of kids around the world reaching out to a guy who's in his late teens, early twenties for like almost spiritual guidance, <laughs> you know, and, and him being able to take that and respond because I was like, I, you know, it's time I go getting this postcard from you that, that was sharing from these letters. Like, I just know like the 15 year old kid who got that, like that made his day. That was me. Right. That was like oh, yeah. a great day. And that a gesture that he, you know I mean? Without like, so it's, it takes a special person to, to carry that kind of weight too, you know, because that's, that's not easy, dude, to be like, imagine being the creator of straight edge, like how many knuckleheads are, you know, all from all around the world hitting you up for guidance. Yep. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You, you become like this deity figure yeah. and it's like, you know, th- this is not ever what was intended or what I wanted no. in any capacity, but now you have to reckon with it. And yeah, he and, has. Yeah. And that's why I said, and I, I said how much I appreciate him and how much that kind of, it's just like, it's, you know, it just couldn't, you can't imagine a 19 year old kid being like, okay, well, I've got all this weight, you know, carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders, whether I like it or not. And just handling it with like grace and never like wavering and like never letting the people down. That's the tough. Yep. That's to the point. The moral of the story is there's only one of those guys. That's why the rest <laughs> of these kids. That's why the rest of these kids can never, can never make it truly with yeah. the, with the punk rock thing. Like even like all these dudes, like Keith Morris, who I love to death. Like you know, there's some circle jerk records later days. Like I don't know what they're trying to do, but it's not right. Yeah. Circle jerk music. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned previously in regards to your, you know, you getting into, you know, the merchandise business, you can directly attribute to your years, you know, on the road tour managing and, you know, doing merch and kind of like a jack of all trades for, you know, bands like Quicksand and obviously, yeah. you know, a bunch of different ones. Um, so wh- I guess what sort of like foundational principles did you learn when you were, you know, out on the road? Was it the simple like, oh, this is what inventory is and like this is how much we should be paying per unit, like that sort of stuff? I, I think so. I, I started the first bands I toured with. The first band I toured with was, was instead. So I did two U.S. tours or North American tours with them. Right. What I learned from that, and I was still a teenager. What we learned from that, I learned from that was contracts. Like the first, in, the, the second instead tour I went on. When we went on, we were like, "Oh, hey man, we're not going to get ripped off this time." We had we had a booking agent. Stormy Shepherd had just started. Who's a well-known booking agent. She just started booking shows outside of Salt Lake City, where she's from. So we went on to into onto that with like men on a mission, like we're going to get paid properly, we're going to get what we earn, we're not going to like because what happens in hardcore is you're just kind of like you know yeah whatever you get shows and like oh okay we only have two hundred bucks to pay another contract for this five hundred and you're like yeah sure that's fine you know but on that tour we were like we're bringing a clicker we're going to freaking sit down with us with the venue at the beginning and we're going to go to the contract we're going to redline some stuff that we don't think we should have like ice expenses or whatever talk about security expenses like all this shit that i didn't think we didn't think of the first time around we saw the second time and that was a real learning experience because that was oh i'm a tour manager <laughs> i'm 19 years old but i'm going to go sit in this 
club with Jake from Unisound and freaking have him put a, put a gun on the table to try to intimidate me, which he did to a lot of people and did to me, and tell us if he paid us our $400 guarantee, we could never come back to Reading, Pennsylvania. And that's being like, sure, no problem. <laughs> like, pay us the $400. Or, or on the merch side, like, you know, no one really took percentages of the merch back then, like clubs, like some clubs did. Uh, the Dubars taught me a lot, a, a real good lesson with this too, is the Dubars were really good at merchandising with Wishing Well Records and Uniform Choice. And they got out of, when we played Fenders, Fenders took 20%, wanted to take 20%, which is pretty standard if you know anything about merchandising. They wouldn't do, so what they would do was they would sneak in, no one counted shirts, they would, we would sneak everything out before last band. And then right. Yeah. We sold four shirts. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> but just that kind of game, that music, that business game that you're playing with clubs. Like I learned that at a young age, like young, like age. And that served me well, you know, obviously the tour manager, because I'd already had that experience of like, Oh yeah. You're like, this isn't just fucking around with your friends and having a, you know, having some vacation, with your friends, like, you want to trade like a business and make some money. You have to trade like a business. You have to look at, you have to, you have a contract. So you have to sit down at the beginning of, before they even play your first note and go, all right, let's go to this contract. Like, can we get paid? Let's get paid now. You know? And, and, and yeah, those are the kind of things. And then when with merchandising, like I never really was sold merch on the road. So I'm more of like the behind the scenes guy in merchandising. Sure. Um, but I, you know, but those kind of, you know, I never went to school for contract for, you know, I don't have a business degree or, or, but I could sit there and write a merchandise contract, like from scratch, that would be fine. And I would know, and I'd cover all the bases and I would know all the points. And yeah, that's all stuff you learn. You just kind of learn from doing it, you know? Right. But you know, observation. Yeah. yeah. You, you never think about, but it's funny, man. Like that, that was clicking that second instead tour, like treating it like a business and, Kevin instead is the singer was like kind of running to run point, but we, I was more like the, you know, I was the bad cop selling at the end of the night. Yeah, sure. He's the singer of the yeah. band. He can't be the good cop. So I'm the bad cop. So I'd be the one going some poor kid, like, Hey man, <laughs> how much you got? Like, okay. I mean, we were pretty cool with the kids, but if you were a professional club owner, like they would, they just try to strong arm you immediately. Cause they just figure you don't care or you're scared or you don't know what you're doing. So like you can take advantage of, for no reason. Like there's no reason you have to, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Um, the, uh, you know, like we, you were kind of mentioning earlier, like the, you know, endeavor that you're doing now with trust records, uh, you know, obviously it's a labor of love, like, you know, putting out records in the fashion that you're doing from these really, really well documented records that are getting kind of, you know, the deluxe reissue treatment and like, you know, essentially the way, that I could tell that you want to see these records out in the world. Yeah. Um, I, I presume that was kind of the manifesto as you were putting these things together to be like, okay, we're going to, you know, like, yeah, we're going to be a record label, but we're not going to be like your quote unquote traditional record label. We're really going to be focused and, you know, do these things the way that we want to see them. Or did that kind of just like come up in, you know, away from original plans that you had for it? Yeah. No. So it's the genesis of this is interesting. So, so I, you, you've heard my story. So this is my story, how I came into music and like saved my life in this way. So the partner I have in Trust Records is Matt, a guy named Matt Pincus. Matt Pincus is from New York. Matt Pincus's upbringing is completely different than mine. Uh, his struggles, 
he found punk rock. Punk rock saved, he'll say the same thing. Punk rock saved his life, uh, especially the band, the Circle Jerks, especially the song Wild in the Street. Because he's, he's a little younger than me. He's going through a troubled time. He gets a tape with Wild in the Street. That song speaks to him. He discovers punk rock, much to the chagrin of his parents, I'm sure, right? And then he goes on, he plays bass in the band Judge, the hardcore band Judge. That's how people would know him from hardcore. But then he goes on and forges a successful music career, like a high, starts a company called Song. Song's the music publishing company. They work with The Weeknd and Lord and Pharrell. He is the founder. He ends up selling that company several years ago for hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd say 160 or 200. I mean, it's on the, it's on Google, but uh, he makes a profit, a real profit, and he's done well with himself and his money. He comes so in the context of we're always been friends, connected by hardcore. While he's doing songs, he reaches out to me and asks if I'll help with a nonprofit thing he wants to do, where try to as, as streaming is becoming prevalent, let's try to help hardcore and punk rock musicians maybe get their song writing credits in order so they can collect you know 50 cents from spotify right but because it's their money so that's how we, we kind of start developing this relationship doing just that and i mean it's just like spare time work and just for that's a labor of love and then what happens is about two or two years ago we were talking and he goes you know what i think we should do is i want to put some money I, i'm worried about this music that we have this, this shared love of this type of music, this punk rock, American hardcore, we call it, right? What happens when we're all dead and gone, when the founders are gone, when label owners are gone? Does this music go away? Like, it's a pretty, this is a pretty easy genre to get lost because it's not very well buttoned up and there's not, you know, really, you know, some of these labels are, are okay, but some are not. And, and he has, the revenue and he goes if you want to do this like let's go out and we'll buy catalogs and we'll do partnerships 50 50 partnerships you know or we 51 49 but we do part you know do split partnerships with either the bands or the labels and then to your point inject some life back into these catalogs and represent these records back into the lexicon as museum pieces Treat them like you would treat a Robert Johnson's blue record or Woody Guthrie's folk record. Look at punk rock and hardcore as a real American cultural phenomenon started by kids and maintained by kids during a pre-internet era and how special that is. When you look at it, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm going to appreciate it later in life as I kind of burned out of it in my 20s. It's like, yeah, like that. And so that's where we're at. So that's the mission. That's the mission. And the mission is to make sure guys like Keith Morris get paid, estates get paid, uh, that people like, you know, if you're, if, you know, if, we, if you're with us, you know, twice a year you're getting a, a royalty statement and some sort of check. And you know your stuff's taken care of. And you know, once we're all dead and gone, like it lives on. And a kid who's like, you know, 10 generations removed from us, finds the Cro-Mag somehow, finds it, you know, right. because it exists, because it's like, and then, and the Cro-Mags, I bring up the Cro-Mags, because Cro-Mags has always been, that's always the talk of the town, right, so it really started with, like, the conversation was like, what do you think is going to happen to Cro-Mags, it's like, because there's a lawsuit happening, and Age of Coral's not on Spotify, and no one, you know, there's been so much backstabbing, and shady business practices, that does that record 
this great record cease to exist one day because no one's take, able to take care of it. And so that's, that's where it came up. So like, it's a very like righteous, I think like once we kind of figured it out and got it on the track, it's like, we're stoked on it. Like, cause we look at it like we, you know, we know it's not a huge revenue generator, but we think it's like culturally as important as anything in music. And that if we do it right, we can position it so that it lives on at like a high level and not just like, you know, like people stumble by accident. Like, and so that's where we're at. I mean, but we have to like collect, you know, we, in order to do that, we have to collect a lot of titles and we have to do good work. So we put out the Circle Jerks group sex, which is, you know, when that came to us, that was for Matt, that was like, okay, this is all meant to be because like I just said, that was like his touchstone. That was what got him into it. And Seven Seconds the Crew is next. And that for me was like, I remember that, that record spoke to me like pretty much more than probably any record in, in that, in hardcore for some, whatever reason, it just was like, okay, this is my record, you know? Right. Um, and so, yeah, so that's where we're at, man. <laughs> I like the, I, I really like the articulation of the, um, y- using this as a, a cultural piece, like, you know, something that you would display in a museum and be able to appropriately get the context of where the band's coming from, not only aesthetically, and then obviously if you listen to music sonically, I, I just really like that notion because I think that's what, you know, in the age of everything being so instant, a lot of what is lost is uh, context for yeah. where the band sits, you know, wh- what this particular particular artifact means. And I, I see the, the, that that's the ultimate mission that you're driving for is the, the context in which these bands exist in and, and obviously also all the business implications behind it. Yeah. Well, it's funny you said artifact, because that was one of the names we'd, we'd kicked around. We were going to call artifact records, but it had been taken. Uh, sure. Because we look at, yeah, because well, it's when we talked earlier, like the surf and skate culture and the music all fit together. And so it's a, like when you look at it that way, like, you know, like it's, it's too, it's, it's an important part of American culture. It's influenced fashion, it's influenced movies. Like, you know, I can tell you right now that you know, bands like Black Flag and Circle Jerk have influenced pretty much anything to do in modern rock and alternative music. And then like, even to the, on the hip hop, you know, there's another thing we started talking about, like is the hip hop world. You don't realize how influenced the hip hop and punk rock communities are on each other, how they came up. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and that's the thing too. It's like that. It's just kids. Like any, anytime you have a, a movement that was pure and generated by kids, that's that's going to have real weight in 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 a cultural impact because it hasn't been tainted by you know like I said like the music biz dudes who get into people's ears it's like it's a pure form of music but the way to, the one way to position you know this is when we talk about the museum pieces it's like okay look it's hard to go to a kid who's never heard circle jerks and be like hey man you should listen to you should listen to group sex front to back <laughs> like if, right. if you don't know why it is like why it was created like that it's the it's hard to digest it so it's that's why you have to kind of put the context of like this is why this music is important this is where these people are coming from this is why these songs are you know done deny everything's 27 seconds long like it's just it's just that and 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 and, and we think that that's going to be carry a lot of weight because the more we do this the more that these kind of trust records pieces come out 
and people know what to expect from them, uh, the more it'll it'll generate. And then and the end game, like I said, the end game in all this is somehow position this so that it sits in like a folkways kind of Smithsonian state where eventually like Matt and I are out of the picture and someone else in a museum type space is curating that music. But we've already done the work and the heavy lifting. It's just a puzzle at that point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. The, the, the road has been paved and other people can drive on it. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. we're, we're looking to like, yeah, we're looking to take our best track over the next 10 years and see what we can see how it finishes on the other side. But it's, it's, it's great for, for me, especially because like I said, it's a full circle move where like I started out listening to circle jerks records in my bedroom and I did whatever through the music business. And then as I come full circle, before I, you know, retire, hopefully one day, like I finish off doing this. It's kind of like poetic in a way. Sure. Absolutely. And, and kind of on that tip, it, the last thing I want to hit on was the notion, like you said, you know, whatever in the, you know, mid to late nineties, you were not as enamored with punk and hardcore, you know, you still obviously were attached to it, but maybe not in the same way that, you know, clearly people ebb and flow throughout their passion for their particular music scene. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting because you've kind of ridden that wave to where you are now and being like, okay, like I'm so passionate about this. Um, you know, I, I guess this may be too big of a question, but just like, what keeps you attached to it? Is it, um, you know, kind of the, the relationships, the music, is it obviously a mixture of all those things? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's all that. Like I said, the way, like the way I came into it, the impact on me, it's not like I, like I needed it. Right. So I needed, I needed that music. Like that's the music I found. That music got me through a real tough time in life but a formative year type thing where you grew into it. And then my friends, you know, there was a very exciting time for me in the nineties, whereas my friends, you know, Zach started Rage Against the Machine and Walter's in quicksand. Quicksand was doing well. And like the warp tour started, like I was on the first warp tour. Right. And so Kevin Lyman, who I knew from being a stage manager at the, for golden voice was doing a tour. And like, so like watching your friends being part of that early music scene, we're not early, but being part of that type time of music, you know, Nirvana's getting big and like Green Day gets big. I remember like being blown away when that record, came, you know, when Green Day got big. Cause like I knew those dudes, I played a show with them with Jabberjaw. And I was just like, I liked their band, but you never thought that they were going to be huge. And so sure. just, there was that exciting like, then like friends got in the music business. My friend, I have a good friend named Peter Berger who's been in the music business his entire life. He, you know, as an AR guy and like guys getting positions in the music business. And then I carved my thing on the merch thing. And like that just kind of felt like, okay, like we just did this, like we've all kind of come up together, right? And we're now kind of in it. So so with the merchandising thing for me got a little stale and I kind of became, you know, like it became more of like a job and nothing. I like merchandising to like creating pro- merch programs and, you know, kind of doing that shit. But like that kind of wore off. And coming back and like when Matt presented this this opportunity for Trust Records, I was like, you know, like I looked at it kind of like, okay. But once I got my sleeves up and I got back into that scene and I'm talking to Keith Morris every week, I'm talking to Mackay, Kevin Seconds, you know, and me are collaborating on how to make a, the perfect crew record. Like it just, you wake up inside. Right. So all of a sudden I'm like, I sure. felt feel alive again. You're like, well, this is why I fell in love with music in the first place. This is fun. Like, this is like, like trying to give back, trying to, trying to make, make a seven second record that, has appeal that you know 
that not only like the old fans will like, but some 20 year old kid will be like, Hey, this is fucking cool. Like that's a real challenge, but it's, but it's worthwhile. So like, yeah, I feel like, you know, it's like kind of like a shot in the arm. Like you just, you come full circle and you remember like, Oh yeah, I love all this kind of music and this culture because I've always, it's always been part of me. I just, you know, I just kind of forgot about it because I'm so busy chasing like, you know, got to sign Beyonce or whoever we're trying to sign. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, sure. And, 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 yeah, there's, and, and there's a whole thing like, sorry, but like, you know, you look at like Coachella, right? The Coachella music festival. Like I go to Coachella festival every year. Well, not right now, obviously, but you know, like that relationship with those guys that started from punk rock. Like, and we talk about it. So like when I see like Paul Tillette or Gary Tovar, these guys from like, we know each other from like me being the shows when I was like 16. So there's, there's this like brotherhood of like, oh, you guys are doing this and I'm doing this. Like, like the, one of the first guys to reach out to me excited about Circles Rich was Paul Tillette, who's like the founder of, of, uh, you know, Golden, of a Coachella, who's just like, oh, this is so cool, man. Make sure you like send me a copy. I'll, you know, and, and it's just like you realize like, oh yeah, that's right. Cause this is the juice that we're, that's all going through our veins. Yep. yep. No, for sure. I, I, I really like that. Um, picture that you paint because I think it, you know, there are, you do need those signpost reminders, whether it's a band or a record or a show or whatever it is that reminds you of that initial jolt of energy, because yeah. I think that's what makes it so, um, you know, real for you as a human to be like, Oh yeah. Oh, that, that, that was the thing. I forgot about it, but that's the thing. <laughs> and, and you get, like I said, like you're doing like you do your podcast, like it comes from the same space, right? Like it's all like you get some, you know, we're all connected through this but we just kind of get caught up in life and like, there's not a lot of guys in the music business. So like, that's just been kind of a, a weird path I've been on, but the guys that I'm still attached to, like we're connected, we're connected by punk rock and hardcore. And then me trying to be the steward of this, you know, whatever we're, we're of this record label and trying to try to do this. Like I have a lot of allies, you know, like, like the people reach out to me and I'm like, Hey man, there's like, can I help? You know, like how, you know, like that's exciting too. Cause you're like, okay, yeah, we're almost together. Right. We're all like, whether it's Tony Hawk or it's like Shepard Ferry, like these dudes care about this music. So, and you're like, so it's, yeah, it's, 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 you know, we just started this, but it's already been rewarding in that sense where you're like, okay, we're doing good work. Like, this is like, this is important, not just to me, but for like a lot of people around me um, who have been influenced it, who want to see like guys like Keith Morris champion. There we go. That was a fun chat. Thank you to Joe Nelson and uh, the publicist, the publicist, like I'm just saying, like it's a one publicist. <laughs> Her name is Bailey. She's great. She works at Grandstand Media. She's the one who helped uh, connect the dots here. And uh, it's really funny to, you know, like go through official channels to uh, talk to people you should know. <laughs> But, you know, we do these things above the board, okay? This isn't just, uh, you know, two people hanging out in a podcast, even though it actually is. But anyways, thank you to both of them. Next week is a fun discussion with an artist that you probably haven't discovered because uh, I don't know if any of you are as obsessed with uh, sort of like soundtracky, erythral, you know, really calming music as, <laughs> as I am, but uh his name is Jameson Isaac. He plays under the moniker Teen Days. And uh, undoubtedly, if you are a Spotify playlist follower of anything like calm and relaxing and, you know, focus music and that sort of stuff, you've undoubtedly tripped across one of his songs. And uh, I'm just, I, 
I love his work and I've followed him for quite some time. And he occasionally would mention stuff in social media about, you know, being aware of obviously the punk and hardcore scene and stuff. And so I was like, I just messaged him out of the blue one day and was like, Hey, do you have like, you know, experience with this? And he was like, Oh man, let's talk misery signals and more. And I'm like, okay, you know, what's up. (laughs) So I had to have him on the show and that's what we do next week. So until then, please be safe, everybody.